Hey, and thanks for tuning in to the Father's House podcast. The Father's House exists to see people discover life in Jesus. We hope that today's message brings you fresh life and renewed hope as you listen. Enjoy. Uh, our key text for this series is uh, in Proverbs chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, where King Solomon, the, the man the Bible calls the wisest to ever live, begins to unpack his intent and his purpose in authoring the majority of this book. Uh, he says this, These are the Proverbs of Solomon, David's son, king of Israel. Their purpose is to teach people wisdom and discipline, to help them understand the insights of the wise, to teach people to live disciplined and successful lives, to help them do what is right, just, and fair. And as we read in that text, and as we've reminded ourselves of every single week as we go to uh, the book of Proverbs, uh, biblical wisdom is not knowledge alone. It is not simply understanding things in our brain. Biblical wisdom is applied knowledge. It's, as Solomon mentioned, doing what is right and just and fair. Not knowing alone, but actually doing those things. And that concept of applied knowledge is going to be crucial today as we unpack our next proverbial principle, uh, one that I would say, at least personally, has been one of the most challenging to embrace in my own life, and I think it's also a challenge for many believers. And, and fair disclaimer as we get into this, uh, this is probably not going to be new information for many of us in the room, if you've been a part of church for any length of time. Uh, this is probably something you have heard before. You understand it conceptually, but my prayer all week long, and what I believe the Holy Spirit is going to do over the next few moments together, is he's going to take it from concept to experience. It's gonna make its way from our heads to our hearts. And here is the proverbial thought we want to open up and unpack today, and it'll also serve as the title of our chat. I wanna talk about the pursuit of righteousness. The pursuit of righteousness. Uh, the key text for this morning, Proverbs 21, 21, Solomon says this. Whoever pursues righteousness and unfailing love will find life, righteousness, and honor. Let's read that together since it's so short, shall we? Whoever pursues righteousness and unfailing love will find life, righteousness, and honor. Let's pray as we, as we get into this text. Jesus, we, we thank you for your presence here. Obviously, we sense that you are here among us. Thank you for uh, walking across this room during worship and touching lives and touching bodies. And as we believed a moment ago and as we prayed, I, I thank you that there are those who walked in sick that were healed in your presence this morning. Thank you that my daughter received prayer this morning for her condition and many others that have been walking with something for a long time. And we trust that you are here to do the miraculous among us. And as we go to your word, as we have over the last six weeks in this series, and we begin to discuss these concepts of wisdom, we remind ourselves that the book of James tells us that we are allowed to ask you for wisdom, and your promise is that in asking, we will receive it. You said you will not rebuke us for asking for wisdom if we lack it. And so today, in this specific area, something that is simple to read, maybe even conceptually understand, I pray for wisdom, the application of this today in our lives. In Jesus' name, and the church said, amen, amen. So like many of the concepts we've discussed thus far, uh, this idea and word righteousness, it, it is a major theme of the book of Proverbs. It shows up some 85 times in the 31 chapters. And in chapter, excuse me, uh, yeah, chapter 10 alone, uh, it is mentioned almost every single verse. It, it's a big deal. But what I find interesting as I read through the book of Proverbs is that the majority of time this word is mentioned in these scriptures, it is attached to a promise. 
a promise that God makes to the righteous. Uh, let me give you just a small sampling. Proverbs eleven eight says, the righteous are delivered from trouble and it will fall on the wicked instead. The promise being deliverance. Uh, in Proverbs 12, seven, it says, the wicked will be overthrown, but the righteous will stand firm. That's the promise. Proverbs 4, 18, the path of the righteous is like the first gleam of dawn. It shines brighter and brighter until the full light of day. I, I rather like that one. The promise is that the righteous don't have to grapple through life trying to figure out what they're supposed to do and where they're supposed to go, but the vision for their life will get clearer and clearer until the full light of dawn. God has a plan for our lives and he doesn't want us to walk around in the fog. Even though you live in San Francisco, he wants us to have some clarity about what he's called us to do. And on and on the promises go throughout the book. This pattern shows up all throughout Proverbs. God makes some, some massive, audacious promises to the righteous. But, but here's the problem. Everybody wants those promises. Like, I think anyone in the room would say, of course, I want divine direction. I want deliverance. I want a firm foundation. These are things that we desire as those that are seeking Jesus. But often we believe that we are unqualified to receive these promises because we have a difficult time identifying as the righteous. Because of our actions, because of, of what we know about ourselves, we excuse ourselves from these promises, assuming that they're made to somebody else who actually qualifies as the righteous. And as a result, we do what the title suggests. We go on this endless pursuit, chasing down a seemingly unattainable goal called righteousness. Uh, let, me, let me play this out in a scenario. I, I need a volunteer. I need someone who's super holy. Josh, come on up on stage. You're a holy guy. Come on. Yeah, give it up for... I appreciate that nobody raised their hand when I said that. I need a volunteer. Someone super holy. <laughs> you know. Okay. Josh, if you wouldn't mind, would you hold this sign that is the Lord's banner over you? You are righteous. Okay. And then uh, I'm going to just have you stand right there. Maybe face me ever so gently over here. So, so if you know Josh, you know he's a pretty holy guy. I've never heard anything mean come out of his mouth. He always smiles. He's way more Christian than most everybody in this room, okay? I'm just throwing that out there. And often this is our understanding of the word righteousness. We, we assume that righteousness means this version of moral perfection, which is not, not surprising considering that the English word defined literally means morally right or justifiable. Keep that in mind because we're going to come back to that in a moment. But, but this is our picture of righteousness. Never do anything wrong, pays the tithe, goes to the church, helps the old woman up when she falls, all the stuff. And, and, and because this is the standard and we know that we are not that, we find ourselves somewhere on the other side of the continuum over here. And we say, okay, that's where I need to get as a Christian, to this idea of moral perfection. So we stir ourselves up. We say, okay, that's it. I'm, 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 I'm gonna be good. I'm gonna read my Bible, I'm gonna go to church, I'm gonna come to church more than once a month, I'm gonna serve, I'm gonna stop doing bad things, like I'm doing this thing, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna be a real Christian. And so we set out on this pursuit towards this goal that we think God is calling us to. But inevitably, eventually along the way, we, we fall, we fail. That was really good, I should act. Okay. 
You, you, you drink too much on Saturday night and you don't show up to church on Sunday. You abuse the substance. You sleep with the boyfriend or the girlfriend. You, you do the thing, you commit the sin that you said you wouldn't commit anymore. And, and because you've fallen short of righteousness, you crawl back to the starting point and you go, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try this thing again. Here we go. And you start walking out towards righteousness. And maybe you make it a little bit further, but inevitably you, you fall again short of righteousness. And we do this dance thinking that we have to start back over and work our way back to this idea of moral perfection. In fact, we do it so much that we've all seen some just give up because they're sick and tired of this process. And they say, I'm never going to be what God wants me to be. So I'm throwing in the towel and I quit. This is what the pursuit of righteousness looks like for so many of us. Thank you, Josh. You can take your banner and back to your seat. Okay. But, but here is the fundamental problem or a couple of fundamental problems with that understanding of righteousness. Number one, it makes the entirety of your faith journey about self-improvement. It assumes that Christian success is where you sin less. It's all about me doing better and trying harder. And that becomes the obsession of our lives while we forget that there is something much greater God has called us to than self-improvement. It's called the Great Commission, Matthew 28. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, telling others about the love of Jesus, teaching them to obey his ways, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You cannot focus on other people when you are so focused on yourself and becoming a better version of you. We lose sight of what this thing is really all about. It was never about self-improvement in the first place. If you don't believe me, go back and read the story of Jesus. One day he meets a woman at a well who has been divorced five times and she's shacking up and sleeping with her current boyfriend. And he asks her to go back into her city and to be a herald of the gospel, to tell people about Jesus. When his disciples went into that same city a few moments prior and all they were concerned about was getting some food and getting out of there because of their racial prejudice. God would rather use a promiscuous woman than a prejudiced disciple. Put that in your pipe and smoke it on a Sunday morning. <laughs> That'll mess with your theology a little bit. This has never been about getting better and trying harder. It's all been about winning more, not sinning less. But, but, but the second problem with this idea of righteousness, this scenario, is that it assumes an improper definition of the word. And it's imperative that we understand what this word truly means. We must know the definition because if Solomon tells us that we are to pursue righteousness, if we have the improper definition, we're going to be running in the wrong direction. We're going to end up at the wrong destination because we don't truly know what this means. So the $1.1 billion lottery question, I know some of y'all played. I did. Uh, <laughs> I didn't win. But if I did, I would still be here, all right? <laughs> what is righteousness? What is righteousness? Well, unlike the, the English word, which, as I mentioned a moment ago, means morally right or justifiable, the, the Hebrew word is much different. 
Subtle, but different. Righteous in the Hebrew is the word sadak, and it means to be justified. Justified. No, notice how I intentionally underlined the last three letters of that word. Because again, a subtle difference, but one with massive implications. Let me explain. Justify a bull means that your pre-existing condition is worthy of the definition. It assumes that there is enough evidence in your life to qualify you to be called righteous. You are justifiable. But justified is quite a bit different. Justified is irrespective of your condition. It has nothing to do with what you bring to the table or your moral pedigree. In fact, it suggests that something greater than your condition has taken place that allows you to now identify as righteous. Oh, I'm already getting excited. Some of you are a little behind, but I'm just, okay, we're gonna catch up right now, okay. Justification is a massive biblical principle. And we could spend hours talking about it, but I promised you I would not force you to linger today, so we will not. Instead, I'm gonna do it as the preachers of old used to do it, and I'm gonna give you a simple phrase to remember what this means. Justified, simply defined, means this. It is just as if I'd never sinned. See what they did there? I'll say it like the Baptist preacher. Justified, I'd never sinned. That's what it means. Just as if I'd never sinned. So let me ask a dumb question. Is there anyone in the room who has never sinned before? Please raise your hand so that we can become your disciple. Okay, nobody in the room. That's what I thought. And, and, and the Bible affirms that reality. Uh, Solomon's daddy, King David, he said in Psalm 14, none is righteous. No, not one. All of us have sinned. We've all failed. So... So that must mean that righteousness is not this idea of moral perfection because if we are all failures, if we have all sinned, then none would qualify for this word that the Bible uses so frequently. It would be like a carrot that God's dangling that none of us would have ever been able to attain. Rather, this word must mean what the definition suggests, that something has taken place on your behalf that allows you to now identify as righteous. Are you following? Romans chapter three, verse 21. But now God has shown us a way to be made righteous without keeping the requirements of the law as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. In other words, God has shown us a way to be made righteous that is not involving moral perfection. We are made righteous by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For all have sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard, yet God in his grace declares that we are righteous. People are made righteous. They weren't before, but they are now. They are made righteous when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. And listen, this is so important. For he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. In other words, what Paul is saying is that when Solomon writes this principle in Proverbs, pursuing righteousness, God was so good and so omniscient, he saw what was going to take place in the future with his son, and he is including even the Old Testament principle, or the Old Testament writings with this principle of righteousness. That's a big deal. This is the clearest picture of what it looks like to be justified. Let me preach it again, even though I just read it. When I place my faith 
in the finished work of Jesus Christ and his cross. When I believe that he lived a life of moral perfection that I could never live and that he died the death that I deserved, in that moment when I believe that he is who he says he is and he resurrected from that grave, I am no longer my old broken sinful condition. In that moment, I receive and inherit the righteousness of Christ Jesus. Come on, that deserves about a 10 second praise break right there. How many of you guys grateful today that you are not who you used to be, you are not judged by your old sinful patterns, but come on, you've been made holy and righteous and white as snow in light of the blood of Jesus. Thank you, David, I got you with both hands in the air. Let's go. That's the gospel, that's the good news. And in light of that, it brings greater clarity to this proverb that we're studying. Because when Solomon tells us to pursue righteousness and in so doing we will find righteousness, he's not suggesting that our life's goal to, should be to chase after this unattainable thing called perfection that none of us are going to measure up to. He's not telling us to pursue doing better. He's pointing to a person. He's saying, pursue Jesus. Well, Jesus wasn't around. That was 1400. Remember the principle. He was including those in a later day. Pursue Jesus, for in pursuing Jesus, you will find his righteousness. Now, side note, but important one. When you pursue Jesus, when you follow him, you cannot help but naturally to become more like him. Some have misapplied and abused this scripture and abused the concept of grace to suggest that God's gonna call us righteous no matter what we do, so it does not matter how we live our lives, we can sin with the best of them and we're still gonna be called righteous. No true follower of Jesus follows that broken logic. Just like no loving spouse would say, I wonder how many people I can sleep with, how much porn I can look at and still remain married to my spouse. You don't do that when you love your spouse. A true understanding of grace, a true understanding of encountering God is that grace is not permission to continue to live in a lifestyle of sin. It is the empowerment to break free from a lifestyle of sin. That's true grace. Needs to be said so that we don't, we add a little truth to this good news. <laughs> that, that is righteousness. It is receiving freely from God. That changes everything about where we started in this sermon. Because if I understand that I am righteous, suddenly these promises made in the Old Testament are no longer made to some elite group of people, some, some morally perfect people that I will never become. They're personal. They're made to me. And if they're made to me, then that means I have the ability to apply these things. I would be wise to not know it alone, but to apply these things to my life. So here's how I would like to conclude in our final moments together. I would like to look at three of what I would consider to be the most significant promises in the book of Proverbs made to us, the righteous. Number one, if you are taking notes, is this, boldness. Boldness. Proverbs 28, verse one. The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as lions. That's a good one. Boldness is not a personality trait. 
It's not on the Enneagram or whatever wicked witchcraft you use to determine personality traits. Boldness is the byproduct of righteousness. And notice the contrast that Solomon uses to display the realities of these two individuals. He says, the wicked or the unrighteous, they flee when nobody is chasing them. They live with this constant paranoia. They're always afraid of what's happening, what's going to happen. They have a negative outlook on the future. They're insecure about something that they are imagining in their minds. Every headline gets to their heart. Every sniffle turns them into a hypochondriac and they go researching on WebMD. Every potential what if turns into fear and anxiety. Do, do you know anybody like this? Are you sitting next to somebody like this? Don't point. Constantly running when nobody is chasing. The, uh, the researchers at Penn State recently uh, conducted a, a survey and, and uh, they found a number of people that uh, they were wanting to study over the course of a, a period of time. And they said, for the next 10 days, we would like you to write down every single time you have a worry, a fear, an anxious thought. We want you to write down what that thing is. And so for the course, over the course of 10 days, every one of the people in this, in this group, uh, they, they began to write down every time a thought popped up, they would write down what they were worried about or what they were fearful about. And they discovered that over the course of 10 days, on average, people had three to four testable fears per day. So after these folks handed in their, their, uh, their, their fears, uh, they watched their lives over the course of a period of time to determine whether or not any of those fears materialized. And, and this was the finding of their research. It was recorded in Psychology Today. Look at what they said. A whopping 91% of fears and worries were false alarms. And of the remaining 9% that did come true, the outcome was better than expected about a third of the time. Translation, we got a whole lot of people that are running when nobody is chasing them. And the Bible has a phrase for that. It's called the spirit of fear. It is literally a demonic spirit assigned by the enemy to rob you of your peace and your confidence. John 10, 10, the thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I think one of the main things the enemy is after in your life is he wants to steal your peace. He wants to rob you of that promise that Jesus gave you in John 14. My peace I give to you and the peace I leave you with, no one in this world can match up to. He's after your peace. But scripture says that you are not subject to the spirit of fear. 2 Timothy 1.7, God has not given you a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And Solomon affirms that spirit makes you bold. Bold in the face of adversity. Bold in the face of opposition. Bold in your prayers. Bold in your declarations. Bold in sharing your faith with the unbelievers in your work. There is boldness that is promised to the righteous. And not just any kind of boldness. He, he actually tells you what kind of boldness you got. Boldness like a lion. <laughs> Come on, a lion. You've seen the Discovery Channel before. 
You know how that lion carries himself out there in the wilderness? There's a reason he's called the king of the jungle. Lions are bold creatures. Do you know that lions are one of the only creatures on planet Earth that do not stalk their prey in stealth? When a lion is hungry, it literally stands up, stretches out, and roars loud enough for everything within a five-mile radius to hear his voice and announce his intentions. I'm going to eat you whether you like it or not. There is a confidence in a lion that assumes every situation he finds himself in is going to be to his victory. And so do the righteous. The righteous do not walk around skittish and quiet and concerned all of the time. There is a bold confidence in the righteous. Not because of anything you've done or not because of your own strength or your own ability, but because you got the spirit of the living God on the inside of you that gives you power, love, and a sound mind. The spirit of the one the Bible calls the lion of the tribe of Judah. The same spirit in Romans chapter eight that raised Christ from the dead lives on the inside of you. And if his spirit is inside of me, then I've got boldness like my Jesus does. The righteous are bold as lions. That's a promise to you. I could say more, but I don't have time. Number two. Another promise to the righteous is something we all want, but it seems elusive. Freedom. Freedom. Proverbs 29, verse 6. Evil people are trapped by sin but the righteous escape shouting for joy. Freedom. Again, note the contrast here. He says the unrighteous, they're, they're, they're trapped by sin. Descriptive word. They're, they're bound. Sin has a grip on their life. It speaks to things like addictions or mental torment or substance abuse, or these sin patterns that we just can't seem to shake. If you're in the Bible reading plan with us uh, as a church, the Bible reading campaign, uh, we read the analogy for this reality in, in Romans chapter seven, and Romans chapter six, where Paul begins to uh, suggest that living in the grip of sin is like being a slave. It's like the enemy's got you mastered, forcing you to do things you do not want to do. And I would assume that I am not alone in understanding how that feels. Yeah, I, I might be a pastor, but I got a past. That's why they start pastor. I got, yeah. <laughs> That's what it means. <laughs> and let me tell you, I know what it feels like to be gripped by sin in areas of my life. Let me say it like this. I know what it means to want so desperately to serve God and to love him with all your heart, but to feel like there's areas of your life where you just can't seem to break free. I think we all know that reality to some extent. But the promise of scripture, and the promise given to us here by Solomon, is that that will not be our reality forever. That we will escape. That those shackles will ultimately break and that we will experience freedom as the righteous. And I love that word escape because it, it acknowledges that there are times in your life where you feel trapped, but it promises that that's not going to be the outcome. You will escape. Uh, my, my family recently went to, uh, to Disneyland. 
Um, my uh, daughter, when she was in the hospital last year, uh, fighting for her life, there's a, a really generous family in our church. Uh, one of them works at Pixar, and they get some free tickets to Disneyland. And uh, she sent them to us and, and told us to tell Ellie about them because she wanted her to, to be encouraged to, to stir herself up and desire to get out of that hospital bed. And so uh, they gave us some free tickets. And then another generous family in the church uh, offered to let us stay at a place down there for a couple of days for free. So we recently went on a free trip down to Disneyland, which was awesome. Y'all know how Disneyland can, can break the bank. Yeah. And when I told our daughters that we were going to use uh, these, these tickets, um, our youngest daughter in particular was, was incredibly excited uh, because she has recently become obsessed with Star Wars. Like, I, <laughs> don't woo that. Here's something you need to know about me, okay? Like, just to be clear, <laughs> I know I'm going to probably lose half the church over this statement, but it needs to be made. I'm not a Star Wars guy. I don't do sci-fi. I don't do fantasy movies. I've never watched them. I, I fell asleep during The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. I just don't get it, all right? They're just beneath me. I'm just kidding. Okay, no. <laughs> anyway, she's obsessed with Star Wars right now. No, namely, um, uh, the, the Mandalorian. She likes Grogu, the little, little green guy. So when she found out that we were going to, to, to Disneyland, she was pumped because we'd never been to the new Star Wars land in, in Disneyland. And so she starts doing all this research about the rides. And, you know, she keeps coming back and telling us about all these things we're going to experience. I'm like, yeah, I just don't care. Uh, but she, she was really excited about it. Uh, one, one ride in particular, I think it was called Smuggler's Run. And, and she began to unpack for us what this ride was like. It's a simulator where one of the riders actually gets to act like the pilot of, of a spaceship. And the whole premise of the ride is you're, you're transferring cargo from one place to another, but in the transfer, you're getting attacked by these enemy aircraft. And so your job is to, to, to safely get the cargo to the next destination without getting taken out by the enemy. And since Livy was obsessed and is obsessed with Star Wars, she demanded that she be the pilot of that spacecraft. So we stand in line and, and, and we get onto the ride and, uh, and she takes the helm. She takes the wheel or the joist, I don't know, whatever you call the thing in a spaceship. Now, this may come as a surprise to you, but Livy has never piloted a spacecraft before. <laughs> and it was evident as she began to drive that this was brand new territory for her. And so, I mean, like, we're running into everything. The thing is shaking. I already get kind of motion sickness. I'm like new guy hurling in the corner, you know, like just ready to lose my guts in the, in the inside of this ride. But even though she had no clue how to pilot this spaceship, and we're getting attacked by all these enemies, somehow at the conclusion of the ride, we were able to escape and land safely in our destination. Why? Because the creators of this ride understood that there would be some inexperienced nine-year-olds piloting their aircrafts, and they didn't want things to end poorly for them, so they predetermined that regardless of the experience or the ability or the knowledge of the pilot, everybody who stepped into that thing was going to end up safely escaping from their enemies. Yes, I am using Star Wars to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to you here on a Sunday morning. Something that is foreign to me. Come on, if you are the righteousness of Christ Jesus, you will escape and you will not be bound to those things that the enemy is throwing in your direction. 
I know it might feel like you're walking through a challenging season and those addictions are getting the best to you and that sin pattern can't be shaken, but that is not your end in life. You are the righteousness of Christ Jesus and you will see freedom on the other side of this. It's your promise. It's your promise. But like all promises in scripture, it's contingent. And I believe it's contingent on this last one we're gonna unpack together. We need to embrace, embody, own as the righteous. And I'll invite the worship team to come as we conclude and unpack this last one. And that is this. The righteous are resilient. Another promise to the righteous is resilience. 24, 16. The righteous may fall seven times, but they will get up again. But one disaster is enough to overthrow the wicked. The righteous may fall seven times, but they will get back up. If you prefer a more modern translation, I offer you Chumbawamba. I get knocked down, but I get up again. Ain't no one gonna keep me down. You're welcome. I like this proverbial principle because I think it is the greatest rebuttal to this scenario we painted a few moments ago, this idea of perfection and righteousness. If righteousness was based on perfection, this scripture would be a contradiction. It would not be able to, you wouldn't be allowed to say that the righteous fall. It would read the righteous never fall. But instead, it acknowledges that the righteous, yes, even they are gonna fall from time to time. In fact, it, it tells you how many times. It says, though the righteous fall seven times, they get back up. Not to get too deep with you this morning, but seven is a significant number in the Bible. The number literally means to find perfect, and complete. It finds its origin all the way back in the book of Genesis when God created the heavens and the earth. And on the seventh day, he rested. He was finished. It was complete. It was perfect. So this scripture could just as easily read, though the righteous are perfect and complete failures, they get back up. Though they fall all the time, they get back up. Note, their righteousness is not found in their perfection. The righteousness is found in their ability to get up again, dust themselves off, come back to the foot of the cross, ask for forgiveness, and keep running after Jesus. Not the wicked, he says. The wicked, one disaster is enough to take them out. One failure, one shortcoming. Back to our analogy, one fall. One moment here where they do the thing that they said they would never do again, and then they throw in the towel. It's enough to completely take them out. Oh God, I, I said I wasn't gonna do it, I promised. I feel horrible, I feel unrighteous. And they stay here, because that's what the wicked do. But we don't do that in any other area of life, do we? If you've raised children and you've taught an infant how to walk, no parent stands over the top of a child that's fallen down while they're learning how to walk and says, that's it. You're never gonna walk. You stay on your belly, bound there for your life, kid. I'm so disappointed in you. You'd be demented. When that child's older and they're learning how to ride a bike, they don't fall over in the court and just stay there on the ground. Well. I guess I'll never ride a bike. I'm just gonna have to walk everywhere. 
I've been at Disneyland, master my Eeyore. You know what I mean? Okay. No, we don't do this with anything else. One fall is not enough to take us out. So, so if we wouldn't do it as a baby and we wouldn't do it on a bike, why would we do it with our faith? I feel like this is a word from God for somebody in the room today who is in this space right now. You got gravel all over your body because you've been hanging out in a ditch for a little bit of time. Listen, the Holy Spirit says, get up, dust yourself off, quit wallowing in your failure and your shortcomings and your problems, assuming that God is standing over the top of you like a demented parent saying, you stay down there, that's where you belong. I assure you, he is not. You are the righteousness of Christ Jesus. You are the sheep of his pasture. You are the head and not the tail. You are above and not beneath. This is what he calls you. So get up, dust yourself off, ask for forgiveness. Don't go back to the starting line. Just keep running towards Jesus. These are the promises that God makes to us. Not to some elite group of people that have figured out how to live without sin, but to every broken person sitting in this room just trying to figure it out in life. He says, I've made some promises to you. I'm gonna give you some resilience. I'm gonna give you some freedom and I'm gonna give you some boldness. So, so let's stop laying on the ground in the spirit. Let's get up and let's lay hold of what God has for us. Sound good? You up for that? Let me pray that over you this morning. Father, thank you for your word. And um, thank you for these precious promises that you've made to us as your children. Today, we just say by faith, we receive all that you have for us. The same way that we received salvation, we receive what you have for us right now. I pray for every believer that finds themselves knocked down on the side of the road, in a ditch, feeling like they can't get up. Holy Spirit, compel them. The same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead is inside of them. So cause them to get back up and to run after you again. Pray for all of those who are dealing with the spirit of fear. We rebuke that right now in the name of Jesus and we declare they are bold as lions in you. God, for anyone who finds themselves gripped in an area of life, I speak to every addiction, every mental torment, every thought of suicide. God, whatever the enemy is using to rob their peace, we speak right now the peace of God over their mind, the freedom of God over their situation. You said whom the sun sets free is free indeed, and we receive that freedom today. And before we conclude, I, I, I just, I need to, to make space for, for a group of people who might say, hey, Tim, I've heard everything that you're saying this morning and I want to identify as the righteous, but you know, back to Romans three, you said anyone who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ has received this righteousness. I don't know that I'm that person. I, I have not been following him. Maybe you did when you were younger and you've gotten away, or maybe this is the first time you've heard about a God that gave his life for you. I wanna make space right now for you to pray a simple prayer of commitment to enter into relationship with this Jesus and to receive the righteousness that we're talking about this morning. Uh, if that's you and you need to pray this prayer along with me, I'm gonna ask you to do something bold because you're gonna get boldness in just a second anyway. Would you quickly look up at me and lift your hand and say, Tim, I wanna be included in this prayer this morning as you pray for those committing their life to Jesus. Thank you, ma'am, I got you. Right there, bro, I got you, yeah. Hallelujah. Yeah, oh, right on, I got you in the back, cool. All right, we're gonna pray this out loud with all of those making this decision. Say, Jesus, today I give you my life. I thank you for giving yours for mine. I place my faith 
in the finished work of your cross. And I believe that you resurrected for my freedom. Help me to be your disciple, to walk in your ways from this day forward until I see you in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, let's celebrate all those making that decision today. Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen to the Father's House podcast. We hope it helped you wherever you're at in your journey. And listen, we wanna pray with you if you're going through something right now that's difficult. You can go to our website, tfh.church, and click on the prayer and praise link and tell us how to join you in prayer. Until next time, be blessed.